the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me again. My name is Amin Tais. Today, I would like to break a little, although not entirely, with the flow of the latest episodes on Islamic law, and instead try to introduce the listener to the concept of jihad. Of course, this is highly relevant to the world we live in today. Unfortunately, much of what the average person hears about this subject falls within what this podcast stands against. I insisted in the introductory episode of this podcast, more than anything else, that one of the major problems that we have in approaching what we call Islam in popular discourse, but even in some more specialized circles, is that we are stuck between polemics and apologetics, between those who attack this thing called Islam and those who defend it. What results from this is not only a caricature, but also a more confusing picture for the public. Nowhere is this more obvious than when it comes to the subject of jihad. Therefore, I also insist on seeking to present to the listener a balanced picture that at least attempts to capture some of the historical complexities surrounding this concept of jihad. Often, those who discuss jihad quote Quranic verses that speak of fighting this or that enemy. Now, if you have been listening to this podcast, you should be aware that those who think that Islam is simply the Quran are highly mistaken. We have seen how both Islamic theology and Islamic law are constructions by theologians and jurists. And we will see in future episodes how this is also the case of Sufism or what uh, many call Islamic mysticism. The concept of jihad is, of course, no exception. That being said, Islamic discourses all still position the Qur'an as central So, let's see how the subject of war, conflict, peace, and pluralism are approached within the Qur'anic text. I want to first highlight three kinds of Qur'anic verses here. In the first group, we find verses that seem to completely embrace pluralism. Let's take some examples. Chapter 5, verse 48 this is Surah Al-Ma'idah. لِكُلٍ جَعَلْنَا مِنْكُمْ شِرْعَةً وَمِنْهَاجًا وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَجَعَلَكُمْ أُمَّةً وَاحِدًا وَلَكِنْ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ فِي مَا آتَاكُمْ فَاسْتَبِقُوا الْخَيْرَاتِ إِلَى اللَّهِ مَرْجُعُكُمْ جَمِيعًا فَيُنَبِّئُكُمْ بِمَا كُنْتُمْ فِيهِ تَخْتَلِفُونَ To each of you, we have prescribed a way and a method. Had God willed, he would have made you a single nation, but he wanted to test you in what he has given you, so compete for what is good. To God is your return, and he will inform you 
about that which you deferred upon. Another verse, chapter 16, verse 125. This is Surah An-Nahl. أدعو إلى سبيل ربك بالحكمة والموعظة الحسنة وجادلهم بالتي هي أحسن إن ربك هو أعلم بمن ضل عن سبيله وهو أعلم بالمهتدين Invite to the way of your Lord with wisdom and good advice and argue with them in a way that is best Indeed, your Lord is more knowing of who has strayed from his path and he is more knowing of who is guided. Chapter 41, verse 34. This is Surat Fussilat. Idfa' billati hiya ahsan, fa'idha billadhi baynaka wa baynahu adawa ka'annahu waliyun hamim. Repel evil by that which is better, and the one whom between you and him is enmity will be as though he was a dear friend. One verse even seems to embrace salvational pluralism, a notion that would become rare if not disappear in later Islamic discourses. Chapter 2, verse 62. This is Surah Al-Baqarah. Indeed, those who believed and those who were Jews, Christians and Sabians, those who believed in God and the last day and acted righteously, will have their rewards with their Lord, will have no fear and will not grieve. A second group of verses seem to emphasize armed conflict, but only for defensive purposes. For example, chapter 2, verse 190, Surah Al-Baqarah. وَقَاتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ الَّذِينَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ وَلَا تَعْتَدُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُعْتَدِينَ Fight in the way of God those who fight you, but do not transgress. Indeed, God does not like transgressors. In chapter 22, verses 39 and 40, this is Surah Al-Hajj. أُذِنَا لِلَّذِينَ يُقَاتَلُونَ بِأَنَّهُمْ ظُلِمُوا وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى نَصْرِهِمْ لَقَدِيرٌ أَلَّذِينَ أُخْرِجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ بِغَيْرِ حَقٍّ إِلَّا أَنْ يَقُولُوا رَبُّنَا اللَّهِ وَلَوْلَا دَفْءُ اللَّهِ النَّاسَ بَعْضَهُمْ بِبَعْضٍ لَهُدِمَتْ صَوَامِعُ وَبِيَعْ وَصَلَوَاتٌ وَمَسَاجِدٌ يُذْكَرُ فِيهَا اسْمُ اللَّهِ كَثِيرًا وَلَيَنْصُرَنَّ اللَّهُ مَنْ يَنْصُرُهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَقَوِيٌّ عَزِيزٌ Permission has been given to those who are being fought that they have been oppressed. God is indeed able to give them victory. Those who have been thrown out from their homes unfairly, but for saying, Our Lord is the one God. If it were not that God keeps some people in check using other people, monasteries, churches, synagogues, and prayer grounds would have been demolished. Places where the name of God is often mentioned. God will indeed support those who support him. Indeed, God is powerful and exalted. 
in chapter 8, verse 61. This is Surah Al-Anfal. وَإِنْ جَنَحُوا لِلسِّلْمْ فَاجْنَحْ لَهَا وَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ إِنَّهُ هُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ If they incline to peace, then commit to it also, and count on God. He is indeed the one who hears and knows. A third group of verses also emphasizes armed conflict and is more aggressive. For example, chapter 9, verse 5. This is Surah At-Tawbah. فَإِذَا سَلَخَ الْأَشْهُرُ الْحُرُمْ فَاقْتُلُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَيْثُ وَجَدْتُمُوهُمْ وَخُذُوهُمْ وَاحْصُرُوهُمْ وَاقْعُدُوا لَهُمْ كُلَّ مَرْصَدٍ فَإِنْ تَابُوا وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاةَ فَخَلُّوا سَبِيلَهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ And when the sacred months have passed, kill the polytheists wherever you find them. Capture them, besiege them, and ambush them. And if they repent, establish prayer, and hand in almsgivings, then let them go. God is indeed forgiving and merciful. And in the same chapter, chapter 9, verse 29, this is uh, Surah At-Tawbah still. قَاتِلُوا الَّذِينَ لَيُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَلَا بِالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَلَا يُحَرِّمُونَ مَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَلَا يَدِينُونَ دِينَ الْحَقِّ مِنَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ حَتَّى يُعْطُوا الْجِزْيَةَ عَنْ يَدٍ وَهُمْ صَاغِرُونَ Fight those who do not believe in God and the last day and do not forbid what God and his messenger has made forbidden and who do not adopt the way of truth from the people of the book until they willingly pay the jizya and are humbled. Before we move on, I need to remind you that Quranic discourse was an oral discourse. It was a living discourse which also means that it was an existential discourse. This is not a theoretical discourse. So what we have here is a discourse that vividly interacts with the particular situation of the community of Muhammad, at least as much as we know, although some historians at this stage of research would beg to differ. What I can say here is that When the Qur'an had become a closed text, there was a need to find a way to put together the different Qur'anic statements that seem contradictory about peace, pluralism, war, and conflict. Pre-modern Muslim jurists sought to do just that, and they based their doctrine of jihad on the concept of neskh, or abrogation, that we talked about in a previous episode. To reiterate here, the notion of neskh or abrogation proposes that the chronological order of the verses as they were revealed to Muhammad matter. At a basic level, neskh says that the verses that were revealed later abrogate or override the verses that were revealed earlier on the same subject. Therefore, The doctrine of jihad that Muslim jurists generally came to embrace establishes jihad as a duty on the Muslim rulers to establish the dominance of an Islamic polity. This is based on the perception that the latest verses revealed 
are the so-called sword verses, the ones we encountered in chapter 9, and that were revealed according to Muslim sources in the latest period of Muhammad's life. Now these sword verses promote an offensive jihad. We must, however, be careful not to see this position as simply a religious one. For we must also remember the political setting at the time in which this doctrine of jihad was developed by Muslim jurists. The political setting is one of empire. In other words, taking over needed resources and political strength is connected to an empire's ability to conquer the lands of neighboring empires. The Muslim empire was no exception. Therefore, the offensive doctrine of jihad was a powerful tool to support the expansionist needs of the Muslim empire. This is not to say that Muslim jurists were simply utilitarianists of sort, but they surely developed their doctrine within the logic of empire. I must also stress, however, that Muslim jurists were keenly aware of moral obligations that were enshrined in the Quranic texts and in the teachings of Muhammad. Muslim jurists, therefore, debated the limits of what Muslims can inflict on the enemy within an armed conflict. So we find texts produced by Muslim jurists in which a number of guidelines are outlined. For example, many jurists insisted that Muslim warriors ought not to harm non-combatants, including women, children, and clergy, and that they ought not to use destructive fires or even cut trees. Certainly, not all jurists agreed about the practices of a just war, to use a Christian or even modern secular language. But there is no denying that Muslim jurists were concerned about serious ethical questions in the conduct of war. Although, as members of their historical contexts, they fell short of establishing the equality of all human beings and assumed the superiority of Muslims over all other human beings. Importantly, as eager participants in social organization and the maintaining of stability, jurists created framework that structured the conduct of jihad. Among other things, they used the distinction that came to be widely utilized in legal discourses, a distinction between duties that are incumbent on every Muslim, fard ayn, and duties in which the participation of some Muslims exonerated the rest from that particular duty, fard kifaya. This distinction appears in discussions of jihad. Many jurists argue that offensive jihad, in order to capture more land, was of the second category, fard kifaya, fulfilled by some as needed, while defending the community against invading forces was a duty upon every Muslim, fard ayn. Importantly, the offensive jihad could only be initiated by the Muslim ruler who also ought to seek the advice of the jurists. 
Another point that is relevant to this discussion and that I want to highlight here is that generally Muslim jurists, particularly Sunni jurists, but later on Shiite jurists as well, were rather quietist and preferred stability to rebellion. In developing and discussing all these issues of war, peace, violence, military jihad, etc., jurists pointed to the Quran and to the Hadith, and they used the tools of Qiyas, etc. However, the problem is that there are many tensions and apparent contradictions between various textual sources on these issues, as is the case with many other issues. Muslim jurists skillfully constructed arguments to ease the tensions and to bring together contradictory texts. But that was not bulletproof, no pun intended. The texts of the Quran and Hadith that dealt with issues of conflict had a potent power of their own and could always be harnessed or used as justification beyond the crafted doctrine of jihad that the mainstream jurists had constructed. Importantly, the seerah of Muhammad, the biography of Muhammad collected in the 8th century that we discussed in some detail in earlier episodes, has many instances of serious conflicts, including some very gruesome ones that featured practices that are unacceptable to modern sensibilities, but that were common in that Arab tribal environment. So, for instance, the Sira features stories of beheadings of men and enslavements of women and children taken as booty in war. You can go back to the episode of this podcast on the controversial elements of the Sira for more specific examples. Not all jurists agreed as to how to deal with these reports, but in all cases, they remained potent throughout Islamic history in one way or another, particularly within severe socio-political situations. We see this play out in the so-called jihad movements that became important on the scene of many parts of the Muslim world in the 17th and 18th centuries and that sought to clean Muslim practices from what they perceived as bid'ah or misguided innovations. In other words, they wanted to return to what they imagined to be the pure form of Islam of the early Muslim community as enshrined in the Sunnah, the Hadith. I will go back and discuss these movements a little more in the next episode. Before I transition to the modern world, I must also highlight that many Muslims, particularly those of a Sufi orientation, while not rejecting the armed jihad, stressed that it was not the most important jihad, rather it was the jihad of the self. The term jihad connotes effort, and it can be translated as struggle. Thus, beyond the struggle on the battlefield, there is a much larger struggle, and it is the highest form of jihad according to those who defended the above position. And this is a struggle against one's own base desires. This position is highlighted in a hadith attributed to Muhammad, and that is widely quoted today 
but that Muslim scholars of hadith viewed generally as a hadith of dubious authenticity. One more very important note. Much of what I've been discussing in this podcast today is at the theoretical level. In practice, rules and regulations were more or less broken or ignored depending on the time and place, depending on the historical setting. This brief picture must be kept in mind as we transition into the modern period because this is the legacy that modern Muslims inherited. Jihad would become highly significant when many parts of the Muslim world fell to European powers, particularly the British and the French in the 19th century, the era of European colonialism that lasted into the middle of the 20th century would not only create much disarray in Muslim domains, but it also left behind it new frames of social and political organization. We no longer lived in an age of old empires. This was now a new order of nation states that dictated different international relations. And despite the benefits that modernity put on the table, there was much unevenness in how the people in Muslim-majority societies experienced these rapid changes. Their world witnessed various levels of exploitation, dismantlement of traditional social structures, and one might argue loss of meaning in many corners. This is a subject for another time. What we need to retain here is that Muslims had to fit their inherited legacy within a new and unprecedented frame, and they are still figuring it out until today. Part of this is the notion of jihad. Is the traditional doctrine of jihad still relevant? In the next episode, I will try and enumerate the different ways in which This crucial question has been answered in Muslim circles and hope to provide the listener with some useful information as to what is occurring today in front of their own eyes. Peace.